Okay, we are doing a study of the parables this semester in RUF. Tonight we're going to look at a parable that's actually a story Jesus seemed to have told quite a lot. There, there are numerous places where he describes life in the kingdom, life in a relationship with him, as being like the greatest party you ever went to. Or in that day, a wedding banquet, which was like the big party. And he does this in several places, actually. And the more I've thought about this, and the more I've been a pastor now for 15 years, working with college students really probably 20, 25 years, um, the more I realize that our experience so rarely matches what Jesus describes when he talks about the kingdom of God being like a great party. And I wonder, did Jesus overreach here? Was, he really, was, it, was it really a good idea to describe the Christian life as a great party? Because most of the Christians I know would not describe their life that way. They would not describe their relationship with Jesus like a great party. They wouldn't. Uh, if, if the life of a Christian, a Jesus follower, is supposed to be like a great party, then why... Do most Christians think that the best way to be a witness is to walk around with a dour face on your, uh, on your dour, you know, look on your face that, and, and criticize everything out there? I mean, that is pretty much the way the church tends to posture itself toward the world. You know, okay, yes, we're not having any fun, but at least we're right. And at least we're not going to hell. But we're not really having any fun, and it's obvious. What, what was Jesus doing? What was he thinking? And tonight we're going to look at two stories, two parables, where he talks about that. And what's interesting is, um, I, you know, I had an opportunity the, the other day to do a wedding, and I was talking to somebody there, um, not from here, but, but there was, you know, an older relative of one of the people getting married who described his wife to this other person. I was just kind of standing there. And it was, it was fascinating. I almost busted out loud laughing because he talked about how his wife was so holy that she had never read the funny pages in her life. She'd never read the comic strips in the newspaper because her mind was always on higher things. And he was like, if you asked her who olive oil and Popeye are, she wouldn't know. I was like, wow, that's, I, I guess that's impressive. I think it's kind of strange to think that that's really that important. But I thought, see, this is the kind of posture that the church gives to, to people who are interested and want to know what is Christianity about. And, and I wonder, is that what they think Christianity is about? That we're a bunch of self-righteous people who would never read the comics? Well, you know, in our generation, there's a different list of things that we don't do. But still, the same problem. So many of the time, religious people are the most miserable people there are. Yet Jesus describes the kingdom of God as being like a great party. And you know why I think we miss this? It's what we're going to get into in the story. I think this is the reason we don't experience the kingdom of God as being like a great party. It's because we're so much more like the religious insiders, the people who expect to get invited to the party, than we are the people in this story that never dreamed they would get an invitation. You see, if our attitude, and I generally think it is, is, well, of course I'm invited to Jesus' party. It wouldn't be a party without me. 
wants to have a party if I'm not there? Certainly Jesus wouldn't want to have a party if I wasn't there. And we think that of course we're invited. We're, not, we're never awestruck at the fact that we've been given an invitation to his party. And so it just doesn't thrill us very much at all. That's what he's trying to get at in this story. Let's see how he tells the story. Um, we'll look first at the version in Luke. And then I want to read a little bit of the version that's in Matthew. I think Jesus told this story a lot. I don't think you have to propose all kinds of elaborate theories about this text being borrowed by this one and adding this bit and that and all this source criticism stuff that just gets, you know, it just gets kind of crazy, honestly. Uh, I think Jesus told his best stories and his best sermons all over the place. And I think Matthew records a different version than Luke, but they're similar stories. Um, we're going to read the Luke version first. It's from chapter 14, if you want to follow in your Bible, but it's also on that page on the back of the announcements there. Then Jesus said to his host, starting at verse 12, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, which is the end times, right? When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. So I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in. Or as the old King James said, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, Jesus says, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And I jump down to the version in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, it's a wedding feast, but very similar, especially the way certain people refuse. And then uh, the invitation goes out to the lame and the poor, right? And look down at verse 11, what I underlined there. This is a different ending than the, than the story as it is in Luke. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The man without the wedding garment was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Whew. Seems like a serious thing that Jesus is getting at here. Let's pray together, and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would humble us, that you would 
Speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray for my preaching that it wouldn't get in the way, but it would be used by you, even the foolishness of preaching, for the work of your kingdom. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, to understand this story, like most of the parables, there are some cultural background details that might elude a modern reader. And at the beginning is actually one of the important ones. There are actually two invitations that the master issues. And it's not unlike the kind of thing you would do if you were going to have a party. But the, the first invitation is in verse 16. The second one is in verse 17, but it's sort of, it's sort of hidden in, in this way. In other words, the man decides he wants to have, have a, a, a party, a banquet. He sends out invitations. He sends out invitations, not to the lame and the weak, but to people who are like him, prosperous, um, influential, the kind of people that Jesus, a few verses earlier, was saying, don't invite these people to your parties, right? Because that's what they were doing. He says, quit doing that. So then he tells a story about people that are doing what the people he's eating with are doing. Right? How to be an unwelcome house guest, right? dinner guest, is to tell a story criticizing the people who've just invited you for dinner. But that's what he's doing. And he, what he says, what's going on here, is the first invitation goes out. And based on how many people would respond to that invitation, say, yes, I will come to the banquet. You know, the guy says, I'm going to have a banquet next week. Will you come? Or please come. And they say, yes, we will. You don't get that. The yes, we will is assumed here. Because the second, the second invitation would never have happened if they hadn't said yes. What would happen in the Middle East, and still goes on this way, is you say, you send your servant out, he gives the invitations, the people say, yes, we will come. And then he prepares the meat. He decides how much, uh, how many animals they're going to have to slaughter. They can't keep the meat for very long, so they have to cook it. They want to get a good number, good estimate. Then they cook the meat, and when the food is ready, remember, it's not a very big place, this village where this parable takes place. He sends out the servant and says, all right, the food's ready. Come in. Come on. It would be like if, I, if you came over to my house and you all were hanging out in the living room, right? You'd, you'd responded on Facebook and said you were coming. And so now you're there. You're hanging out in the living room. And then, you know, I, I come in from the grill and I've got, you know, a platter of hamburgers and hot dogs. I say, all right, the food's here. Dig in. And you all turn around and walk out. That's, that's what's going on here. It's not just that they politely uh, say, no, we can't come. We've got important things to do. These excuses are so lame. They are insulting. And the reason they're insulting is because they've already said yes. If they hadn't said yes, they would never have gotten the second invitation saying, come now, the meal is prepared. So that's the first thing to understand about this. The second is these excuses. We need to take these excuses and see what's really going on here. Um, you know, I bought my car that I drive around now off of eBay. Now, I don't know if you bought a car off of eBay, but the way I did it isn't the way you should do it. Um, I did as much research as I can. I, I knew I wanted the, an old Toyota Avalon because it was a little bigger than a Camry, but, you know, had the same engine and drivetrain and all that. So I thought this would be a good car. There weren't many around here in Nashville, so I was impatient. I got on eBay. I bought one from Cleveland. I'd never seen the car other than pictures, you know, on the Internet. And so I hired a Belmont student. I flew him up on Southwest one way to, to, to Cleveland, and he drove the car back for me. But the guy who sold it to me made me report him with positive feedback before he'd give me the car. 
So I didn't have any ability to say, you know, this car isn't as you described, right? I paid like $9,000 for a car, and I had no opportunity to actually look at it or examine it. Now, that was stupid, right? And, you know, like these guys offer, I don't know, they offer excuses that go way beyond my stupid thing that I did. These, these things are not just stupid. They are inconceivable in this culture. It, for instance, it's inconceivable that you would buy a field in the Middle East where there's very little farmland, and most of the, the good farmland has a proper name and has since time immemorial. The, the, all, of these, all of these places are known, and, and everybody in the village knows for generations who's owned this, and they know um, how well it does, and they know what's on the property. The idea that you would buy a piece of property and then go look at it is inconceivable. And everybody that heard Jesus tell this story would have thought, that's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that it's a public insult. I mean, the guy could have said, okay, you know, I've been haggling, because usually they would haggle over a real estate transaction for years before it would finally settle. Okay? You would never say, oh, I just bought this property. I've got to go look at it. Never, ever would you do that. And so the guy could have said something to save face. He could have said, you know, I've been negotiating for this piece of property, and all of a sudden the person selling it says, we have to close the deal tonight. I need to go. That would have been kind of a lame excuse, too, but at least it would have not been publicly insulting the way this is. This is insulting because nobody who heard this story or who heard an excuse like that would think anything less than this is, a, this is really designed to publicly humiliate the banquet giver. And the second one is like that as well. Five yoke of oxen. Oxen are worthless to you unless they pull together evenly. You would never buy oxen and then try them out. And Jesus actually makes it even more ridiculous by saying that this guy bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen that he hasn't tried out. That would be, you know, like you writing home to your parents and saying, you know, I, um, I, I just bought a car. Uh, so I can't come over. I know, Mom, I was going to come over for dinner tonight, and I know it's your birthday, uh, but I, I bought a new car off Craigslist. No, I haven't seen it. You know, no, I don't even know what kind it is, but I need to go check it out because I, I spent a lot of money on it. Right? It's ridiculous. And your mom would quickly conclude that you really just don't want to be there. You really just don't want to be with her. Right? It's insulting. But the third guy is the worst of all. At least the first two say, please excuse me. This third guy doesn't even ask to be excused. He says, I can't come. But what's worse is what he says. Now, I don't know if, if you all have known people from the Middle East. Um, I know Suniva actually lived in the Middle East for a little while. But here's what's interesting. People from the Middle East do not talk about female family members publicly. They don't talk about their wives. They don't. This guy, do you know what he's actually saying here? See, every one of the three excuses, or the first two excuses, have the same format. I just did this, therefore I need to do this, please excuse me. The, sec the third one is, I just did this, I can't come. The, the thing in the middle that he won't say, well, here's, here's, how, here's how it's taken. I'm married, and uh, you know, you know. Right? What's that old Monty Python, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? Now, 
In our culture, that's a, that's a strange thing for somebody to say. Like if you've got married friends and they say, you know, we were going to get together for lunch, but me and my wife are going to have sex, so we can't do it. Uh, that would make you very uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's why when you have married friends, you don't call them like after six o'clock at night because you just don't know what they might be doing, right? So, but imagine in this very traditional culture, that's basically what he's saying. I'm, I'm married. He doesn't say, I just got married. The English translations kind of miss that a little bit. He doesn't say, I just got married. It's not his honeymoon night, guys. He's not skipping his honeymoon for the party. That's not the issue. The, the, there never, there, no way would a banquet giver schedule his party at the same time there was a wedding. Everybody would go to one or the other. You wouldn't force people to do that. Our next door neighbors, we have neighbors from, from uh, Iraq on both sides of us, right? And one of our neighbors, like her wedding had to be postponed because a relative of some friends of theirs in Iraq died and she couldn't have her wedding. It had to be postponed like they don't you don't overlap things. So this is not a guy who was recently married. This is a guy saying, you know, I'm married and, uh, you know, I'm, you fill in the blanks. And, and it was totally offensive. All of the Middle Eastern commentators that talk about this passage say this is just absolutely about the most offensive thing that you could do. So, the, ang the anger builds in the, owner, in the uh, banquet giver, doesn't it? And it's justifiable anger. He's been publicly humiliated. Not only that, but the only conclusion he can, der he can derive from this turn of events, these three people that all said yes, and now have all said no in a way to publicly humiliate him, is that they're trying to stop the banquet from happening. They're figuring that the banquet can't happen if they're not there. He's been publicly shamed by his peers. And, uh, you know, remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the, before this parable. You guys are always inviting your friends. Now, imagine what happens if you invite your friends and they publicly humiliate you, right? Um, so what, what, is, what does the banquet owner do? What does the banquet giver do? What does he decide to do? Well, he shows costly love by bearing the shame of those he invited who then publicly humiliated them. He bears the shame. He does not, he does not take revenge upon them. He doesn't. And it says in his anger, it's sort of a weird construction, the way the language works. In his anger, he says, go out and get the lame and the blind and the deaf. It's you would expect the sentence to say, in his anger, he decided to send his armed guards to teach those guys a lesson. No, it says, in his anger, he decides to invite others. His anger generates energy, which he then turns away from revenge to inviting people that had no hope of ever being invited to this kind of party. Right? He overcomes the attempt to stop his banquet. He says, it will not be thwarted. Quickly, he says, go out and get these people and bring them in. And, you know, to do that, do you know what it was going to be like to face his peers? Who said, ah, you know, you, you had to invite the riffraff for your party to happen. He's not, win he's not going to show up in the society pages the next day, right, for doing this. But he doesn't care. He bears the cost and the public shame. Now, what's the significance of this? 
What's the significance of inviting the unwelcome ones into the banquet in this parable? And for this, you need to understand a little bit about this theme of the wedding banquet and the great banquet. Because when Jesus talks about this, he's building on a tradition that's probably seven or eight hundred years old. Back in Isaiah, chapter 25, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, God revealed through him that he had a plan for a great messianic banquet. The Messiah would have this great banquet on the mountain with all the peoples. Right? There's a beautiful picture there in Isaiah 25. But in Jesus' day, nobody believed what Isaiah had said. Not only that, they had turned the meaning of Isaiah 25 upside down. Did any of you all heard of the, uh, the message, you know, that translation? Or, you know, you know that message, the message at all? It's sort of a uh, more like tra translation into sort of modern English. I actually like it. Um, I think it's really helpful sometimes to help you see the Bible in a fresh light. But in Jesus' day, there was sort of that kind of translation into the Aramaic. People in Jesus' day rarely spoke Hebrew. Most of the Jews didn't know Hebrew anymore. So they translated the Bible into Greek, but they also translated it into Aramaic, which was the language the Semitic people spoke. And it's called the Targum. They have these Targums. It's like a, a, a Aramaic translation. The Aramaic translation of Isaiah 25 is so crazy. This is what people had twisted Isaiah 25 into. They basically said, yeah, you know, there's going to be a meal on the mountain, but instead of it being a, a meal of honor, it's a meal of, uh, of cursing, and it's going to be the plague to end all plagues, and, and, and all the Gentiles will be killed. So Isaiah says, all the Gentiles get to eat on this mountain. All peoples will celebrate the Messianic banquet. There will be people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation in this vision. Right? This is what John picks up on in the book of Revelation. He didn't just make that up. It's a theme throughout the Bible. But in Jesus' day, the, the translation that the common people use said, yeah, there's going to be a banquet. The Gentiles are going to be invited, but just so we can humiliate them and then kill them. And there's another book, the book of Enoch, which was a Jewish book written in uh, the second century B.C., right? Or uh, just a little before the time of Christ. It says in there, same kind of thing. Yes, it, it basically has Isaiah 25, that vision. And the guy who wrote Enoch says, OK, yes, there's going to be the Messianic banquet and the Messiah will be there and all the peoples. But also the avenging angel of death will be there with his sword and he will slaughter the Gentiles. So it's like talk about reinterpreting the scriptures. I mean, there's some crazy interpretations out there, but that really takes the cake. They had completely turned this upside down. And then there was a group called the Essenes. You've heard of the Pharisees, you've heard of the Sadducees. The other group that was an important sect of Judaism at this time were the Essenes. The Essenes said, yes, there's going to be a Messianic banquet, but where you sit is based upon how holy and righteous you are. And you better know that for sure, the lame, the crippled, the deaf, the blind, anybody with a blemish on their face will never sit at the Messianic banquet. So Jesus is coming against all of those things and saying, you guys are all wrong. You're all wrong. Not only that, this is my banquet. This is interesting. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, the, the, the question, I don't know if you thought about this or not. Who says, verse 24, is that still the master of the banquet speaking or is it Jesus speaking? And I'll tell you, it's Jesus speaking. How do you know? It's hard to tell in the English, but in the Greek, the you is plural. All the way through the parable, the, the addresses are singular. 
The master is talking to one person. But here it changes. Jesus now turns to the people who are sitting at him with the table and says, this is my banquet. Do you see that? Now, why is that a big deal? Well, think about it. This is a claim to be the Messiah. And he's claiming to, for, for them this messianic banquet that you expect at the end of the age. It's happening right now. And they're all thinking, you can't be the Messiah. You eat with the wrong people. You eat with sinners, tax collectors. And, and you, further, you break the law all the time. You work on the Sabbath. You heal people on the Sabbath. You can't be the Messiah. Jesus says, this is my banquet. It's time to eat. Come on. Or don't. But the time is now for you to decide. Right? I tell you, Jesus says, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. He's saying to these guys, your excuses are so lame, they're insulting. Insulting. You need an invitation? I've given you an invitation. But don't you think that the only people getting an invitation are you religious insiders? So you, you, you read this parable and you go, whoa, this is, a strong, this is a strong parable, right? And remember, it was made in response to a statement that this guy who was sitting there with him at the table, or lounging, because they would lounge around this table, right? Kind of on one elbow up like that. This guy says, you know, blessed is he who gets to eat, you know, in the kingdom, right? That was a statement that we have lots of other sources, lots of writings that we know that people said that all the time. And there was an expected response from Jesus. There, there was an expected response. See, here's what's going on. Jesus is eating with these people. There's great controversy about the Messianic banquet. And they're wanting to check out Jesus and what he thinks about the Messianic banquet. So they throw out a question. It's, it's a statement, but they're going to see what is he going to say in response to this? Is he going to say, yes, amen? Or is he going to say something like, yes, only the people let us pray that we would be righteous enough that we could eat in that day at the banquet. That's what they're expecting him to say. They're expecting him to say something like that. Instead, he tells them a story that convicts them and says, you guys are so absolutely clueless about what the great party is all about. And it's because you think you have a right to be there. And do you realize that because you think you have a right to be there, you're completely missing it? Would you open your eyes and see your excuses that I eat with the wrong people, that I don't do the things you want me to do, that I haven't kicked the Romans out of Palestine? All those excuses are lame excuses. What are you doing with me? What are you doing with the messianic banquet that is here right now? What will you do? Will you come in? Will you come in? Jesus is saying, woe to you, religious power brokers who think that you can control who I let into the kingdom. Because I won't stand for it. And, and, and then he says, right, it's still not full, right, the servant says. And, and the master says, well, go out to the highways and byways and compel these people to come in. And now, you know, reform people like to jump on that verse, say, ah, it says compel people to come in. You know, where's free will in that? You know, it's all about compelling. But I, I think that would be to overdraw what this passage is teaching. What you need to understand is, in this culture, if you 
are not at the same social level as somebody and you get invited to their house for dinner, you are expected to refuse. And if, if you, you actually do want to go, even if you're starving, you still have to refuse. To, to do otherwise would be a huge cultural faux pas. And there's actually an example where Jesus does this very thing, where he says, no, 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 I can't. And they kind of press him, and then he relents. That's just how they did it. It's weird, but it's just their culture. And that's what's going on here. Jesus knows, uh, the, 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 the banquet owner knows, if you go out to the highways and the byways, this means if you go outside of your community, if you go out to the non-Jews, really in the context probably what he's talking about, they're not going to believe that the invitation is for real. And so you're going to have to take them by the arm and say, come on, it really is. Let me show you. It's a great passage about what it means to be, do missions and to think about bringing people to be with Jesus. Well, what are some points uh, from this Matthew story? Because there's one little thing we need to look at. What, what is the en this ending of the Matthew story? Matthew has this idea. It's a wedding banquet. There are people who are invited who are poor and lame, just like in the Luke story. But then you get this whole thing where there's a guy who's in the party, but he doesn't have the wedding garment. Now, when you are invited to a wedding, and a great man, a king, or a very rich man invited you to a wedding, if you were someone who was poor and didn't have proper attire, the host was expected to provide it for you. So everybody hearing this parable, hearing this story, when they find out that this guy has no wedding attire, they don't think, oh, darn, he, he, should, have, he should have thought about that, or he should, have, he should have planned better, or he should have really um, you know, paid more attention and tied his tie or something. No, they're thinking, oh my gosh, how, why would he do that? that? Why would he insult the king who provided clothes for him he had to have arrogantly refused them to find himself in the party without the proper attire. Okay? It's not just that he happened to get in somehow. He had to refuse what was provided to be in here. And Jesus gives a stern warning for those who refuse what's, uh, what's offered. So put it all together, Luke and Matthew, and here's what you get. Jesus is teaching us that we need an invitation to be part of the kingdom. That we need to be compelled to come in. And you need to be dressed the right way. A couple points to ponder. Application here as we close. It's time to eat. The Messianic banquet has already started. When Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, they celebrate the Messianic banquet, which he inaugurated in the upper room. And we say these words that we've repeated for generations and centuries, 2,000 years, that we celebrate his death. We, in the present, celebrate his death until he comes again. In the Lord's Supper, we actually taste a foretaste of the Messianic banquet. It's Jesus' table. He invites us to sit there, except he is the menu. It's kind of crazy, but it's no less crazy than this idea. If you follow this idea of the, of the wedding banquet in the scripture, here's what you find. You get invited to a party. And when you get there, you find out you're the bride. Whoa. You get invited to the party and you get there and you find that all the presents are for you. 
It's in your honor. That's what the Bible says. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. The Messianic banquet is my banquet, and it's here. And again, the religious leaders are complaining. No, you can't be. You can't be the Messiah. Here's why. You're eating with the wrong people. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are the lame excuses of our generation? What are the lame excuses of your generation? What, what are the reasons that you sit on the sidelines rather than go in and eat? What? What are, what, are, what are the excuses of your own heart? And I'm not just talking about, you know, people who would say, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I, I mean, those of you who follow Jesus, all of us at times refuse to go into the feast and eat what's provided. All of us at times think that we can dress ourselves and look pretty good in God's eyes if we just do the right things. We're, we're all, mostly all in this room religious insiders. Right? People that think that, you know, of course, you know, we do the right things. And, you know, if I don't kill anybody and, you know, I'm a little better than, than this guy. And, you know, I don't do stuff that my roommate does. Well, then I've got a pretty good shot of being right with Jesus. No, those are all just different silly ways of trying to clothe yourself. The only way you can get into the banquet and stay a welcome guest in the banquet is to be clothed with the righteousness that Jesus gives. Right? Uh, it's a great story that I love. There was this old um, Scottish Puritan guy named David Dixon. And he, he understood this so well. He was on his deathbed. And it, he was asked, David, how is it with your soul? And I love his answer. He said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds. And I've thrown them together in a heap. And I've fled from both of them to Christ. And in him I have peace. George Whitfield, the great uh, revival preacher back in the 1700s, thousands and thousands of people converted under his ministry, used to regularly preach to people, the biggest problem that you have is your righteousness. Until you repent of your righteousness, you'll never know the peace of God. And isn't that what Isaiah says? That our righteousness is like filthy rags. Your righteousness, not your sin. See, everybody, everybody feels bad about their sin, really, at some level. And tries to repent and tries to make little deals with God. But Christians, real Christians, are those who repent of their righteousness. Because they see it's full of holes. And only the righteousness of Christ can cover you in a way that you can be made acceptable to enjoy the feast. So here's the thing. Man, do you realize that you are the lame and the deaf and the blind? That you're the one who has no wedding clothes, just as I am, and yet Jesus says, I'll give you everything you need to eat at this banquet. You were a rebel, you were a traitor, but now you get to eat at the king's table like one of his own sons and daughters. That's what the gospel is. Now, I think if we understood that, see, the two reasons that we don't resonate with this theme of the party is we don't think we're the lame and we don't really appreciate what we need to be able to eat there. We don't understand what the wedding garment is, what we need, and we don't think that we really are the blind and the lame. We think we're the religious insiders. It's just that we didn't give bad excuses. We accepted Jesus, right? And we did a big favor to Jesus in accepting him. I think we feel that way sometimes in our hearts. It's really wrong-headed. 
But we feel like that because so often the Jesus that's presented to us in American evangelicalism is this pathetic Jesus who's knocking on the door of your heart, hoping that you'll give him a chance. This is not, that's not the Jesus we see here. This Jesus says, if you don't have the wedding garment, you're going to be bound and cast out. And I make no excuses for it. That's the real Jesus. So what will we do with that? You either, you either make lame excuses, you either shake your fist at him, or you say, clothe me because I can't clothe myself. And that's what faith is. Saying, I'm blind, I'm lame, but put those clothes on me. I want to eat at the feast. I want to celebrate with you. Let's pray together.